From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. We sprung for one hour. Fix your microwave clock. The failure of Silicon Valley Bank gives us an uneasy view of our banking system. And former President Trump could be indicted. Find out about the case. Plus, would you bet on a WWE match? Well, the WWE is trying to make that happen. Might be tough. And it's not like uh, the reputation of the WWE is so pristine that one might not think that there would be some legitimacy problems with that. It's Sunday, March 12th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Former Vice President Mike Pence made his most forceful rebuke to date of the January 6th Capitol attack and then-President Trump. NPR's Amy Held reports Pence spoke at a high-profile Washington dinner last night as he teased his own run for the presidency. The annual Gridiron Dinner brings together journalists and politicians to hear Washington luminaries do some lighthearted ribbing. And Pence delivered, cracking jokes, until he got to January 6th, indicating that's no laughing matter. President Trump was wrong, he said, adding history will hold him accountable. Pence at the time resisted Trump's efforts to overturn the election, and last night he called Trump reckless. Pence has done a delicate dance around the insurrection, condemning the violence, but not Trump directly, at least at first. But he's distanced himself from his former boss as he publicly ponders his own potential presidential run, declaring at the dinner he will wholeheartedly support the Republican candidate, quote, if it's me, drawing laughs. Amy Held, NPR News. California regulators are working through the weekend to try and stabilize Silicon Valley Bank, or SVB, a firm that worked with nearly half of all U.S. tech startups. E. Okobi from member station KQED spoke with a co-founder of a business that can no longer access its cash, held by SVB. Corey Ford runs a venture capital firm that funds media leadership and innovation. He learned about SVB's collapse from a WhatsApp chat group for venture capitalists. Union Square Ventures, which is probably one of the most respected venture capital firms, had sent out an email, apparently, to its whole portfolio and basically said, if you have money in Silicon Valley Bank, you should get it out of there. Ford agonized over whether or not to contribute to what was basically a bank run. By the time he decided to, his company accounts had been frozen. Now he must wait until Monday to learn the fate of the seven-figure sums his company had deposited at SVB. For NPR News, I'm E. Okobi in San Francisco. In Tel Aviv, thousands of Israelis gathered to protest judicial reforms. The late Saturday night protests were in response to the government's plan to limit their country's Supreme Court powers. Protester Einat Giva Levy encouraged her fellow Israelis and other countries to fight for democracy. We will never agree to have democracy abolished in this country. It's really important that we raise awareness all around the world. Last month, Prime Minister Netanyahu proposed the overhaul that would allow the country's lawmaking body, the Knesset, to overturn Israel's Supreme Court decisions with a simple majority. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Boston area startups with money tied up in Silicon Valley Bank are in a waiting game. Federal regulators shut down the bank Friday after it lost most of its value last week. The founder of the networking group Startup Boston, Stephanie Rolick, says the bank was deeply enmeshed in the startup community here. And she says startups that did not invest funds there themselves may still be affected, for example, if their payroll provider had funds in SVB. It's incredibly tense. A lot of people are panicking. I think it's just more so just the uncertainty and knowing that you really can't do anything about it until Monday, like you're not able to take your money out. Regulators do say that by tomorrow, companies will have access to insured funds. Generally, that applies to funds up to $250,000. Four Massachusetts lobster fishers have filed a class action lawsuit against California's Monterey Bay Aquarium and the Marine Stewardship Council. The groups point to lobstering as a risk to critical endangered North Atlantic right whales. Those who filed the suit say the group's so-called red rating of lobster as a non-sustainable food may dissuade customers from purchasing American lobster caught by trap from the Gulf of Maine, southern New England, and Georgia's bank stocks. The Monterey Bay Aquarium argues that entanglement and fishing gear are the leading causes of injury and death in the whales. Speed restrictions are still in place on the entire MBTA Green Line and on the Mattapan Trolley, as well as on parts of the Blue, Orange, and Red Lines. On Thursday, Interim MBTA General Manager Jeff Gonneville ordered system-wide slowdowns after the agency discovered several track safety documents were missing or inconsistent. Massachusetts is preparing for a nor'easter. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce has more. A significant coastal storm will bring impacts to the region beginning tomorrow night and lasting into Wednesday morning. Many will start as rain but transition to a heavy wet snow. The highest accumulation will be focused outside of 495 north and west of Boston where a foot or more may fall. Scattered outages could result. Lower accumulations but still a plowable event is likely for the remainder of the Bay State. The wind will also ramp up strongest Tuesday late morning to early evening damaging gusts at the coast along with minor coastal flooding and erosion. It is 36 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia for 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. This is Week in Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. The rapid collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, or SVB, on Friday has left a lot of people in the banking and financial sectors shook. Signs of trouble appeared on Wednesday when SVB announced the sale of securities at a loss. It also sold over $2 billion in new shares to bolster its bottom line, but panic had already set in. Companies started withdrawing their money, and by Friday, trading of SVB shares had halted. The bank was shut down and went under FDIC receivership. That's the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. We're joined now by Anat Edmati, professor at Stanford University's Business School. Welcome to the program. Thank you. How did this bank fail? It feels like in 48 hours, but was it a longer term thing going on here? Like what happened? Oh, definitely it was a much longer thing. 
in that bank in particular, but across the banking system more broadly. And basically, there are two main things here. One is the fact that inflation picked up and the Federal Reserve started increasing interest rates. And when you increase interest rates, all kinds of things start happening in banking. And historically, it has often been the precursor of some trouble. But the other thing is that there were a lot of deposits kind of slushing around the system, a lot of people looking for what to do with the money. So what ended up happening was all this money that Silicon Valley Bank had coming was invested, some of it, in loans in the Silicon Valley area uh, to all kinds of businesses, and especially startups and venture capital and others. And there were businesses that had large deposits uninsured by the FDIC, which only covers up to $250,000. And so their investments started losing money. And that was both on some of the riskier investment loans that they made, but also on various other securities Basically, as interest rates go up, the value of previous promises to pay at lower interest rates go down. And so a lot of banks, not just uh, Silicon Valley Bank, have a lot of losses on the actual market value of their investments. Now, you might not see that change. It might be invisible to you because they're not selling it, so you don't see it, basically. And it became insolvent months ago. It just wasn't recognized as that. Is there anything in the way that this bank collapsed that tells you that SVB was an outlier? Or is this a larger issue and a sign of more troubling weakness across the banking sector? I think the bank had a specific configuration that made it more vulnerable. There is trouble across the board. Right now in December, the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, reported that across the banking system, there are $620 billion of what they call unrealized losses. In other words, losses that we're not seeing in the reports that the banks make. And that's up from $8 billion the year before. So it's more about seeing who's swimming naked, as Warren Buffett said. You know, when the tide goes down, you see who's swimming naked. So it's really about recognizing the weaknesses in time. And that is the job of the regulators. So what does it mean for a bank to go under FDIC receivership? What can the FDIC do at this point? So when FDIC takes over a bank, that's basically the equivalent of a bankruptcy that you would file for when it becomes insolvent or it starts defaulting. What they did by stepping in is they just froze everything and they told the insured deposits that they can get access to their money on Monday, like in one day, and that the uninsured deposits, which is majority of them, so we're talking about over $150 billion or something like that, will get some kind of certificate for some dividend to be decided later. So they're not getting access to cash. Now, that created a huge problem for a lot of these small businesses around here and the large depositors because they are using the bank to make payroll. Our economy is kind of in this weird space right now. We have low, really low unemployment, but then we've got this high inflation. We keep hearing about an impending recession, but the job numbers are still looking good and, and there's some you know, competing factors there. So does, does SVB's collapse say anything about the larger economic picture and should people be really 
um, regular people who just kind of get their paychecks at the bank at Wells Fargo or, you know, Bank of America, should they be worried about keeping their money in the bank? No, no, definitely not. There is no question that the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation is good for its guarantee. The FDIC essentially is backed by the government and by the Federal Reserve. They will not default on their promises to guarantee all deposits up to $250,000 per person per account. Other things that are not insured deposits, uh, one is taking risk with those in principle. And, you know, people like higher returns, so they move money to money market funds, to, you know, all kinds of other mutual funds, and then they invest. So that's an issue. But certainly deposits are not, deposits up to the deposit insurance limits are not a problem. That's Anat Admadi, professor of finance and economics at Stanford University. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. Donald Trump could soon become the first former president in U.S. history to be indicted. He's been invited to testify before a grand jury in New York this week, a move that's seen as a likely prelude to an indictment. NPR's Ilya Meritz covers Trump legal matters and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. This has to be a pretty busy beat for you, I would imagine, Ilya, um, because there are several criminal investigations surrounding the former president. Um, Remind us where this one fits in in the bigger picture. Right. Well, there's one investigation by a local prosecutor in Atlanta into Trump's pressure campaign on Georgia officials to move the state into his column in the 2020 election. Then there's the federal investigation connected with that election and also classified documents Trump took to Mar-a-Lago. This investigation is the longest running of all of them, and it reaches back to 2016. It's being led by Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, who already won a conviction against Trump's family business for a long-running tax fraud late last year. Trump was not personally charged. Bragg spoke in January, just after sentencing. This historic sentencing serves, or should serve, as a reminder to all in New York, both companies in their corporate form and their executives, uh, that this type of conduct in New York will not be tolerated and will be held accountable. The next thing D.A. Bragg said seemed a little cryptic at the time. He said, this sentencing closes this chapter into the investigation of former President Trump and his business. We now move on to the next chapter. I guess we know about that next chapter now. So it's been widely reported that D.A. Bragg has been presenting evidence to a grand jury about hush money paid to adult film actress Stormy Daniels. Remind us uh, what happened. Stormy Daniels claimed she had an affair with Trump, and during the 2016 presidential campaign, she was looking for a buyer for her story. Obviously, this kind of information would have been bad for candidate Trump. I want to play you a piece of tape secretly recorded by Trump's fixer at the time, Michael Cohen. What you're going to hear is a conversation Trump and Cohen had, not about Stormy Daniels, but about another woman, Karen McDougal, who had a similar story about an alleged affair with Trump. You'll hear Cohen and Trump discussing how to buy the story so they can make sure it never gets out. When it comes time for the financing, which will be... Listen, what financing? We'll have to pay you. So no, pay okay. no, 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 no. I got... In the end, the National Enquirer bought McDougal's story and did not publish it. And Cohen bought Stormy Daniels' story through a shell company. Trump later reimbursed Cohen 
for what was described as legal expenses. And this is the fact pattern that we believe is at the heart of the grand jury investigation. The payment could constitute falsifying business records, which could be a felony if it can be shown this was in service of an illegal campaign donation under New York law. Remember, Michael Cohen went to jail for his part in all this. It was an illegal federal campaign contribution. But there haven't been any repercussions for Trump personally thus far. So, so what was his role in this? Federal prosecutors were very clear in Cohen's case. They said Cohen acted at the direction of individual one, a person who they did not name, but who was very clearly Trump. And Cohen later described being repaid by the president in installments, checks with Trump's signature on them. But the Justice Department has a policy of not pursuing indictments against a sitting president. And that's when the Manhattan DA started investigating about five years ago. And here we are today. What is former um, President Trump's team saying, and, and what are they likely to say if he is indicted? Trump has always said that Stormy Daniels' story is made up. He says Cohen is a liar, and Democratic prosecutors like Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg are out to get him. Trump attorney Joe Tacopina also previewed some of his side's legal strategy for NPR. He told us the law here is murky, and that Bragg's likely theory of the case is untested. And that is true. Most legal scholars are saying the state statutes available to Bragg would make this a very unusual and risky prosecution. Plus, the defendant would be a former president. If there is an indictment, when would we expect to see that? At the end of this month, at the earliest, is what people with knowledge of the New York grand jury process are telling us. That's NPR's Ilya Meritz. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 9:18 and coming up in about 5 minutes you'll consider 10 years of Pope Francis. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at wbur.org/cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. It's 36 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today. Highs in the low 40s. Tomorrow, temperatures in the mid 40s. And a nor'easter moves in tomorrow night and continues through Tuesday delivering wind, rain, and snow to the region. The highest accumulation expected to be inland outside 495, north and west of Boston. That area may get over a foot of snow. Amounts will decrease closer to the coast. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Luis Schiavone with these headlines. California regulators are working through the weekend to try and stabilize Silicon Valley Bank, or SVB, a firm that worked with a community of tech startups nationally and internationally, as well as other state industries, including wines. In Tel Aviv, thousands of Israelis gathered to protest judicial reforms. The late Saturday night protests were in response to the government's plan to limit their country's Supreme Court powers. 
Oil giant Saudi Aramco today reports its profits surged to a record result, $161 billion last year, a result of higher crude prices. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Cruise Lines following the journey of Lewis and Clark while small ship cruising along the Columbia and Snake Rivers. Learn more at AmericanCruiseLines.com NPR. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at WaltonFamilyFoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Tensions over a wide range of issues, from forced labor to the systematic rape of girls and women, have served as a serious wedge between Japan and South Korea. But increasing concerns over China's aggressive regional expansion and North Korea's threats could push the two countries with a long history of acrimony closer together. South Korea's President Yoon sung yeol will be visiting Japan this week. It'll be the first such visit in 12 years. We're joined by Sumi Terry. She directs the Asia Program and the Center for Korean History and Public Policy at the Wilson Center. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. President Yoon's visit is intended to accomplish a number of things, like including compensating Koreans who were drafted into forced labor when Korea was occupied by Japan starting in 1910. Can you tell us a bit about that history for people who may not be familiar? Sure. Japan colonized the Korean Peninsula between 1910 and 1945. So there was a huge number of Japanese living in Korea. It was very intense, brutal colonization. And during that period, Japanese forces conscripted nearly 750,000 Korean men as forced laborers and 200,000 women as comfort women. Uh, As you said, you know, that's a euphemism for sex slaves used by Imperial Japan from occupied countries, not only from Korea, but other countries too, like China, the Philippines, and the Dutch Indies. From the Korean perspective, they want sincere apology, they want compensation. And from the Japanese perspective, they said, hey, you know, there is this 1965 normalization agreement between South Korea and Japan which have settled all post-war claims of compensation. And they also maintain that they have acknowledged and apologized numerous times for various crimes and that, you know, there's, uh, frankly, apology fatigue from the public. Why is South Korea now saying it will compensate victims of forced labor instead of calling on Japan to do so? Well, they have called on Japan to do so many, many times. I mean, this is what the Koreans really want. But frankly, the Japanese are just not going to do that. So President Yoon is now being very realistic. And when you consider the age of labor victims, they're in their 90s. And among the 15 plaintiffs who won damage uh, against the Japanese firms in 2018, only three are currently alive. So from Korean perspective, if they want to improve relationship at all 
with the Japanese, this is the sort of the only solution that the Yoon administration came up with. But this plan is contentious, right? Because there are some South Koreans who are saying, why is South Korea playing instead of Japan, right? Oh, absolutely. This is very contentious issue. The public does not like it. And there's a very strong anti-Japan sentiment. This is a courageous decision. President Yoon sought a solution, and he feels that this is the only solution for Korea-Japan to improve their relationship. Both countries face nuclear threats from North Korea and increasingly confrontational China. But why is the South Korean government so intent on improving relations with Japan right now? Well, they're the two most important allies for the United States, right? They are two mature democracies. They should be uh, working together. As you mentioned, they they faced North Korean threat. Last year, North Korea tested some hundred missiles. They're on the verge of conducting a seventh nuclear test. There's also the China factor. The regional environment is ripe uh, for the countries to improve relationship. You know, in, in Korea-Japan relationship, it has not always been bad, right? There were times in the past when things were better. So, for example, in late 1990s, the Korea-Japan relationship was in a better state. They co-hosted World Cup together in 2002. So again, right now, when you look at the political environment, just the threats they're facing, it's the right thing to do. And from the U.S. perspective, of course we welcome this announcement because nothing's been more frustrating for the U.S. government uh, than these two important allies of the United States not working together. Do you think that these proposed reparations could be a new phase in Japan-South Korea relations? I do. There's already, they are taking steps to improve the relationship. Japan lifting export controls, they're normalizing intelligence sharing, then they will be meeting uh, face-to-face. The only real challenge here is the Korean public. President Yoon has to get the buy-in from the Korean public. At least President Yoon has four more years. So I I do hope that Korea-Japan relationship will improve. That's the Wilson Center's Sumi Terry. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Tomorrow, Pope Francis will mark 10 years as leader of the world's 1.3 billion Catholics. NPR's Sylvia Pajoli reports on the papacy that over the last decade has steered the church leftward after more than three decades of conservative leadership. In St. Peter's Square, a group of young American Catholics are among thousands waiting for Pope Francis to deliver his Sunday message. Jillian Caruso thinks he's doing a great job. He came out with a statement that we were talking about at dinner last night that no pope has ever said about gay people not being a sin. So that was pretty cool. Her friend Carolyn Cree agrees. Especially in this time, like, everyone just feels supported by him, you know. The women are referring to the pope's recent denunciation of laws criminalizing LGBT people as an injustice and a sin because they're children of God and God loves them. His message over, Francis gives his signature sign-off. Don't forget to pray for me, he says. Have a great meal and arrivederci. And the 86-year-old Pope returns to the modest guest house where he has chosen to live rather than the apostolic palace. 
In this same square ten years ago, the new pope introduced himself as coming from the end of the world. Fratelli e sorelle, buonasera. I miei fratelli cardinali sono andati a prenderlo quasi alla fine del mondo, ma siamo qui. The Argentine Jorge Bergoglio became the first non-European pontiff in more than a millennium. Since then, says Massimo Fagioli, professor of theology at Villanova University, Francis has made clear the old world no longer calls the shots on what's Catholic and what's not. The Western Hemisphere, the North Atlantic, a certain bourgeois Catholicism, he has rejected that in the most radical terms. The first Jesuit pope, and the first to take the name Francis, after the saint of the poor, was elected with a mandate to clean up a scandal-ridden Vatican administration. Papal biographer and veteran Vatican watcher Marco Politi says Francis's reforms of the Vatican Bank are radical. It is no more possible that mafia money flows through the Vatican Bank or corruption money for political parties in Italy like it was in the past. And it's not only on financial issues that Francis has left his mark. He has wiped off from the table all the obsession of the Catholic Church about sexual issues. Shunning the culture wars, Politi says, rarely does Francis speak about birth control or abortion. He doesn't change the, the letter of uh, some church documents, but with his gestures or with his words... He paves the way to new attitudes. Francis has traveled widely across the globe, mostly to the peripheries where Catholics are few and feel marginalized. He has promoted outreach to other religions, in particular intensifying dialogue with Muslims. And yet, Francis has proved perhaps more than his cardinal electors had bargained for. He has angered many conservatives inside and outside the church for his scathing critiques of unfettered capitalism and his staunch environmentalism. Once capital becomes an idol and guides people's decisions, once greed for money presides over the entire socioeconomic system, it ruins society. It sets people against one another. It even puts at risk our common home our sister, Mother Earth. And he has prayed on the Mexican side of the U.S. border. He said afterwards, a person who only builds walls and not bridges is not Christian. A remark seen as a rebuke of then-presidential candidate Donald Trump. Within the church, he has opened the door slightly to divorced and remarried Catholics to receive communion. And he's making the church less Vatican-centric, says Politi, delegating more decisions to bishops. It is a slow process of decentralization. The Pope has opened up the church administration with many women in leadership positions. And he has declared war on clericalism, that old boys' network of priests, bishops, and cardinals, the privileged caste that rules over an unquestioning flock. This kind of elitism is something that drives Pope Francis crazy. David Gibson is the director of Fordham University's Center on Religion and Culture. He says Francis considers clericalism the major sin in the church, the cause of abuse of power, and the sexual abuse of minors that has convulsed Catholicism throughout the world. 
Francis tackled the cover-ups of clerical abusers as much as their crimes, says Gibson, by finally holding those responsible accountable. But resistance to this papacy is intense. The opposition to Francis is increasingly vocal, and the opposition is very strong. It's very passionate. It's everything goes. Francis' traditionalist adversaries accuse him of sowing confusion among the faithful by focusing on pastoral issues rather than doctrine. An anonymous memo published last year, apparently written by the late Australian Cardinal George Pell, called this papacy a catastrophe. German Cardinal Gerhard Müller, removed by Francis as Vatican theological watchdog, went public last October. In an interview with the conservative Catholic cable TV network EWTN, he poured scorn on what he sees as Francis's progressive agenda. The occupation of the Catholic Church is a hostile takeover mm -hmm. of the Church of Jesus Christ, and they think the doctrine is only uh, like a program of a political party who can change it according to their voters. Some Vatican observers say a civil war is underway in the Catholic Church as his adversaries step up efforts to push the Pope to resign. But, says Gibson, time is on Francis's side. The longer he stays, the more cardinals he'll appoint who will choose his successor. So time equals power and influence in the Catholic Church. And the conservatives feel they're running out of time. There's one issue where Francis has been sharply criticized by liberals and conservatives, his initial reluctance not to name Russia as the aggressor in Ukraine. The Vatican has stressed the Holy See's traditional role as mediator in international disputes. But theologian Massimo Fagioli says it was a serious misstep. He says it showed the Argentine Pope had not fully grasped the historical implications of war breaking out yet again in Europe. And when a political leader, as the Pope is, when he speaks about wars, when he speaks on issues that are so serious, every word should be measured very carefully. The Pope's most ambitious project is the ongoing vast global consultation on the Church's future, culminating with two bishops' assemblies at the Vatican this year and next. Francis's goal is a more inclusive church where everyone can be heard and share in the decision-making. The conservatives will likely do all they can to thwart the Pope's agenda. Silvia Poggioli, NPR News, Rome. It's St. Patrick's Day on Friday. Expect parades, parties, and perhaps a plate of corned beef and cabbage. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with corned beef and cabbage. But if you wanted to tweak the tradition, what kind of alternatives are out there? If you know your butcher well, you would ask him for lovely thick chops. And with some lovely carrots and onions and some thyme and chicken stock, you'd have a delicious Irish stew. One of Ireland's top chefs, that's today on All Things Considered. Tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. You're, lis you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. 
The rainstorms pummeling California aren't the only weather woe in the state, where a state of emergency has been declared in roughly two dozen counties so far. Desperation has turned to anger for many people in the San Bernardino Mountains, east of Los Angeles. Residents there continue to dig out from the freak blizzard there two weeks ago, and they say the county isn't doing enough to help. From member station KVCR in San Bernardino, Madison Ament reports. Volunteers gather in a church parking lot at the base of the San Bernardino Mountains. The snow looks beautiful, but it's cut people off from vital supplies for weeks. This is our donation drop-off point. Rita Nelson has been organizing the relief. Some people come, and companies and organizations come, and they're dropping off the food, and one way or another, we're getting it up to the mountain. Like many of the volunteers, Nelson evacuated before the blizzard and hasn't been able to get home. The county has plowed hundreds of miles of roads, but many are only wide enough for one car and are difficult to maneuver. Many smaller roads are still snowed in or walled off with 10-foot piles the plows left behind. While people can't leave their homes, what has made it out are pleas for help, which tugged at Nelson. I'm not going to just sit here and watch and hear all these stories on Facebook and um, people texting and calling out for help, and you can't ignore that. Some 25 volunteers who found each other via social media have jumped into action. In the church parking lot, a volunteer backs up a big delivery truck. Others load cases of bottled water, food, snow shovels, and other supplies into the back. The driver heads to the San Bernardino airport where helicopters wait to fly the supplies up the mountain. Inside a hangar, yet more volunteers weigh the donations to calibrate each helicopter's load. This part of the operation is run by the California Disaster Airlift Response Team, or CalDART. It's a nonprofit all-volunteer group of pilots who fly their own helicopters. Our uh, focus area today is Sky Park because the roads are worse than Sky Park. Paul Marshall is CalDART's president. They still can't get as easily into that area. The helicopters are a lot faster and more agile than trucks. Ron Lovick is an incident commander with CalDART. We can leave this airport and we can be anywhere on that mountain in 15 minutes and we can be right where it's needed. Like where Kevin Connors lives in the small mountain town of Crestline, population about 9,000. He was able to crawl out of a window and trudge from his home to a grocery store. The store's roof had collapsed, but he was able to get food. There's no one that's ever walked up to my door or to our neighbor's doors. Connors feels like county officials have abandoned him. You know, they say they're going door to door, but they haven't looked at this street ever. The frustration is understandable, says San Bernardino County Sheriff Shannon Dykus. He's leading the storm response and says residents need to understand that in an emergency, there are priorities. We got to find those folks that are truly in dire need. If you're worried about, you know, your driveway getting plowed, those things become secondary, even though we're making great strides as a county. San Bernardino has set up a hotline, food distribution sites, and two shelters. Firefighters say they're going door-to-door to check for gas leaks. Meanwhile, CalDART volunteers plan to fly in supplies as long as they're needed. For NPR News, I'm Madison Ament in San Bernardino. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Spring's almost here, but a winter storm will get here first. A nor'easter is expected to show up in Massachusetts tomorrow night and continue all day Tuesday. And it will involve snow, rain, and high winds. The most accumulation will be inland outside 495 north and west of Boston. That area could wind up with over a foot of snow. And it will be heavy wet snow, so some power outages are likely. Snow accumulation will decrease closer to the coast. On the MBTA, speed restrictions remain in effect on the entire Green Line and on the Mattapan Trolley. Also, on portions of the blue, orange, and red lines, on Thursday, the T's interim general manager ordered system-wide slowdowns after the agency discovered several track safety documents were missing or inconsistent. The Boston Bruins have become the first NHL team to clinch a playoff spot this season, and playoff tickets for Bruins home games go on sale this afternoon. Yesterday, the Bees also landed in the record books. They earned their 50th win in their 64th game of the season. That makes the Bruins the fastest team to reach that milestone in NHL history. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. I'm Nagin Farsad, filling in for Peter Sagal. Last week on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we asked Nobel Peace Prize winner Malala which she would choose, Taylor Swift tickets or Beyonce tickets. I would want both tickets. I have a Nobel Peace Prize and I demand <laughs> Incredible answer. We'll hear your demands on this week's news quiz from NPR. Tonight at 6 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the maxim that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, publishers of the Kids Count Data Book, providing data on the well-being of children, youth, and families, available at aecf.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. could have seen that knockout coming. Well, the writers and performers at WWE World Wrestling Entertainment, that's who. It's no secret that WWE scripts its matches. So are you willing to lay down money on the results? CNBC media reporter Alex Sherman says WWE is looking to get into the betting game. And he joins us now. Welcome to the program. Hi, Aisha. Happy to be here. So tell us, you know, who and and where and what is going on, according to your report, and with WWE looking to get into legalized gambling. WWE has been working with EY, commonly known as Ernst & Young, a big accounting firm, uh, on securing the results of of sampling of hand-picked matches. This is all sort of hypothetical at this point. Uh, But they're looking to the Academy Awards, actually, as their template for why they feel like they might be able to convince regulators and then betting companies to go along with this plan. In a few states in the country today, it is already legal to bet on the Oscars. And in that case, 
There is an accounting firm, famously Price Waterhouse Coopers, that works with the Academy Awards to put its known results under lock and key, sealed away until the award show announces the results. So that's not a scripted uh, uh, set of results, yet it is known prior to the event, and gambling is legal on the Oscars. So the pitch from WWE is that that's actually not really all that different from what we're doing. Yes, we're scripting it, but we can present the scenario to you where a very, very few uh, amount of people will know the answers to this. We'll allow gambling on it for a certain amount of time. Then we'll turn the gambling off. Then we will tell the performers and the production crew who's going to win and how the script should go. And then the match will happen. And in the meantime, over the course of weeks or months or whatever it may be, the people that gambled on the match would then win or lose with the results. So that's the pitch. Whether or not this pitch will actually be accepted, still to be determined. That answered a lot of my questions because in my, I'm thinking, I'm like, well, if the the performer or the wrestlers know who's going to win, then wouldn't that be very enticing for them to, you know, kind of tell their cousin or their friend, hey, look, I'm, I know I'm going to have to take a dive on this. You can make some money, right? And, and it's not like uh, the reputation of the WWE is so pristine <laughs> no, that, that, that one nice. might not think that there would be some legitimacy problems with that. So I think you're absolutely right. I think, again, this is according to my reporting, the way that WWE would try to sell this is that they would actually lean into the fact that you could gamble. And maybe they would only choose one match, at least in the beginning. You know, So you could imagine maybe the championship match at WrestleMania or whatever it may be, that one match would be the gambling match. And WWE would be very public, and they would write it right into the storyline. And they would say, the wrestlers don't know. The production crew doesn't know. You know, The only people that know is, is Vince McMahon, who you know, is the majority <laughs> owner of WWE, and, mm. and uh, Paul Levesque, who is known as Triple H, who now runs creative mm -hmm. for WWE. So maybe they would say, like, those are the only two people that know in the entire world, uh, other than the accountant at Ernst & Young. And you know, maybe they would dress somebody up that looks like an accountant or something like that and position him. Certainly that wouldn't be beyond what WWE typically does. Now they just need to convince state regulators and the gambling companies themselves to actually do business with them. But they're asking for this in only a handful of states. What states are those? Right. So they've already registered in Indiana. And from what I'm told, they're targeting Michigan and Colorado as two other states that they're looking at. Colorado has already come out and told me that they are not interested in this. So they may be the hardest sell, but they're going to be targeting states that historically are a little bit looser with what they have allowed in terms of gambling. Now, during conversations like this about big businesses, um, sometimes, you know, I have to interject to let our audience know if the company we're talking about, you know, has sponsored NPR. And in this case, nope, uh, the WWE has not a sponsor of NPR. <laughs> That is a, a shocking development. <laughs> so, but thank you so much. That's CNBC's Alex Sherman. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
Who are you wearing? A question that stars have had to field every year on the red carpet at the Oscars, and they'll be endlessly scrutinized, best dressed, worst dressed, and this year may be most sustainable. The Academy Awards are partnering with the organization Red Carpet Green Dress to encourage attendees at this year's ceremony to make their outfits better for the planet. Samata Patterson is CEO of RCGD Global, and she joins us now. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So what does your style guide ask Oscar attendees to do for sustainability? We recognize that the conversation, it's a popular conversation. It's one that's happening in rooms and houses across the world, but not everybody really understands what it looks like in the fashion world. And so what we've tried to do is introduce the topic in a way that's accessible and show that there are so many ways that they can participate and and show um, even a, a level of consideration towards people and planet that won't inconvenience them in any way, you know, one that is about a conversation. So what do you advise them or recommend that they do? Is it, is it about wearing vintage or what type of suggestions are you making? Yeah, so we cover quite a, a wide gamut. We we touch on things from the technical perspective. So looking for gowns that are made with certain textiles, looking for gowns that are dyed in certain ways. But we also talk about rewearing, considering looking at vintage. But we also even give them advice about going with designers that are from, you know, marginalized groups. You know, sustainability is about social issues as well. Some fashion brands have been accused of greenwashing, basically using the environment as an advertising point without really making changes. I mean, how can you make sure that this isn't just like feel good talk and it's like actually something that's like making a difference? Yeah, well, we're really fortunate because we work behind the scenes with the brands as well. Like we have a very passionate framework that touches on everything from certifications and human hands and transparency across to materials and biodiversity, textile waste. We're very intentional with who we work with and where they are in their journey. But for those brands that are earlier on in their journey, we're all about solutions. We're all about, okay, this isn't what you're doing isn't working or this thing that you're focusing on isn't working. We need you to be aware and educate yourselves about the solution so that you can actually make meaningful changes change. We're relying on honest dialogue, you know, with everyone that we work with. You know, most of us can't go to a couture brand and and borrow something from the archives and a very small percentage of clothing that's given to thrift stores actually gets sold. So, So what does sustainable fashion look like on a budget? I think sustainable fashion as a definition has been misdefined, but actually sustainability is something that is in communities and always has been. It's sharing clothing um, within family, it's clothes swaps, it's resale platforms, but we do need more sustainable solutions that are accessible across all price points for everybody. At the same time, we've been sold a bit of a lie because the cheapest fashion, you know, getting a dress with embroidery on for say $13, is subsidized by somebody at the other end of the chain. That's just the time that they use to create that gown. They're not being remunerated fairly. There is this idea that luxury brands are more sustainable, but that's not really necessarily true. So then, you know, when you have a celebrity, they're going to go for the luxury brands. So how do you how do you deal with that issue? No, absolutely. And that is a fallacy, 100%. I think what we've tried to focus on is aligning with brands who have set not just sustainability goals, but measurable metric systems to measure where they were five years ago, where they are today and where they plan to be five years on from now. And that requires even a participation in known and recognized entities. You know, we have these transparency indexes and they actually show that, you know, a large percentage of luxury brands 
are not disclosing information and that some of those kind of the lowest scores in that index are from some of the top luxury brands in the industry and we have issues of them burning and destroying unsold goods so there is there is a call out that needs to happen and i just i really wanted to reiterate that there is a call out to luxury brands to address those issues which you know harmful to environment and and harmful to the general cause of sustainability that's Samata Patterson, CEO of Red Carpet Green Dress Global. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. There's some must-see TV on tonight, and it's not the Oscars. This is your chance. You get her there. You keep her alive. And you set everything right. That's right, it's the finale of the first season of HBO's pandemic drama, The Last of Us. The show, airing one episode per week, has had almost everybody talking, tweeting, anticipating, and it's made us wonder about a debate that's front and center and streaming. Is it better to deliver a show all at once so consumers can binge it or make them wait week by week? Who better to ask than our in-house experts, NPR TV critic Eric Deggins and Glenn Weldon, host of Pop Culture Happy Hour. Hello to both of you. Hey. Hey, great to be here. So what about The Last of Us? What has made it so effective as a weekly show? Well, this is Glenn. I'll start. Um, As you heard, it's really intense. (laughs) It's violent. It's very high stakes. So it just helps to decompress afterwards. You know, get up off the couch, take a breath, walk your dog, look at a freaking sunset. I mean, but it's also uh, rich enough that it benefits from unpacking it with other people. So it's one of those shows that people used to gather around the water cooler in the office to discuss on Monday morning. Water coolers moved online. You check your socials to see what people are saying, what Easter eggs you might have missed. I mean, don't get me wrong, the monoculture is gone and it's not coming back. But with a show like The Last of Us, going online, you can kind of pretend it's still around. Would it have worked if it were delivered all at once? Like a lot of the Netflix shows are delivered all at once and that's how we got used to doing it that way. Sure, this is Eric. I think it's probable that it would have been a hit if all the episodes had been delivered at once. But when you have them strung out weekly, it spreads the impact of a show on the zeitgeist people start to talk about it and it gets other people's attention and it becomes a snowball that kind of rolls its way through the pop culture landscape. And, you know, to me, the thing about uh, The Last of Us is that every episode gives you new storytelling and almost kind of resets the storytelling in some ways, you know, from one episode to the next, you might see the same incident portrayed from different vantage points, different perspectives, different characters' points of view. And that also allows you to feel like you're stepping into something new every week. And the other thing that I think is cool about it is that, you know, people binge watch something and then they're like, There's, I, I have nothing to watch. I don't know what's on TV. Well, this takes a great series and spreads it over a couple of months. So you always have something great to watch on television coming up. Yeah, I agree with you, Eric. But that's that's exactly why I worry that if it had dropped all at once, I worry that it would have burned out in a weekend. You know, yeah. Instead of a six-course meal that takes all evening to eat, you get a big bowl of jelly beans you just scarf down by the fifth full. <laughs> pleasurable, both pleasurable, both provide the same calories, but one's a lot more satisfying. What kind of show do you think lends itself then to like binge watching and to, you know, eating the jelly beans? Well, different people have different criteria. For me, comfort viewing makes a better binge. Like if the format of the show is rigid and unchanging, if the stakes are low, if you can fold your laundry to it, it's bingeable. So that's procedurals like uh, Law & Order, 
most reality TV, frankly, especially competitive reality TV, especially RuPaul's Drag Race. Mystery of the Week shows, Monster of the Week shows, like Poker Face and The X-Files. Uh, hangout shows where you just want to pretend you like live in the town, like Gilmore Girls. Sitcoms like Happy Endings. Now, I just realized all those examples I gave are older shows, uh, most of them anyway, and that's not a coincidence. I think familiarity for me is a key factor in bingeability. One thing I like to binge is high-quality shows that have already been on the air. Shows like Breaking Bad, shows like Justified, shows like Mad Men, where there's a lot going on. And you see all these little things that maybe you didn't catch the first time you watched it when it was airing weekly. Or you get a chance to connect things that happen in the first episode that connect to the sixth episode of a season. What I really like is this sort of hybrid model that is occasionally uh, emerging where like Hulu with Only Murders in the Building, they dropped three episodes first. So you could binge the beginning of it. And then once the show really sort of caught fire and started going, they would parcel out the episodes one a week. This isn't a debate just for fans and critics. There are like some real economic implications for streaming, right? Because obviously Netflix had changed the game by dropping all the episodes at once. And now is there some thought that they might need to rethink that? Binging is a way of sort of giving the consumer control over their consumption, right? But what streamers are finding is that sometimes it's better to retain a little bit of that control for the good of their business and also for the good of the viewer. So a lot of streaming services are realizing that to limit churn, which is to limit people picking up their service and then dropping it right away, it makes more sense to string out the episodes. And I think most series are not compelling enough to really sustain a lot of pop culture conversation if you drop all the episodes at once. You know, I, I love Yellow Jackets, and I was really annoyed that Showtime put that out once a week. I wanted to know what was going to happen next, but they yep. kept me engrossed in it. Otherwise, I might have looked at that, you know, just binged it all right then. So you're saying they have to save us. You, you're, a, you're a parent just like me, and you know sometimes, sometimes. kids want things that they can't have. It's not yes. good for them to have it. Yeah. They eat too many jelly beans. They're going to have yeah. a stomachache. So you just got to go, yes. hey, look, you got to wait for that next episode of Yellow Jackets. That's NPR TV critic Eric Deggins and Glenn Weldon, host of Pop Culture Happy Hour. Thanks to you both for coming on. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Have a wonderful weekend. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR. It's coming up on 10 o'clock as Weekend Edition Sunday continues. Join NPR All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro Sunday, March 26th at City Space for a conversation about his new memoir and tales from his broadcast career. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com member FDIC, and Babson College. Build entrepreneurial skills and make an impact with a Babson MBA. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu slash MBA. An elementary school classroom in Canada decided to tackle a big question. Does a life-saving drug astronauts may rely on change in space? At such a young age, we found out big science. We'll hear from two students about their groundbreaking discovery and what advice they have for other kids who have an interest in science. That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. It's daylight saving time. We sprang forward an hour, but the news is right on time. Today, we hear about the implications of hospital ethics boards being used to decide medical exceptions in states with abortion bans. One of the things that I am hopeful about is that folks will understand the ways abortion is not a black and white issue. And Saudi Arabia and Iran have reached a deal restoring diplomatic ties. Plus, what time is it on the moon? The answer is more complicated than you think. It's Sunday, March 12th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Former Vice President Mike Pence is lobbing his toughest remarks yet about former President Trump and the role that he played in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Speaking at the annual Gridiron Dinner in Washington, Pence said that Donald Trump's reckless words that day, quote, endangered my family and everyone at the Capitol, and history will hold Donald Trump accountable. Pence is expected to seek the 2024 GOP nomination. The warm weather system that just hit California delivered rain this time to higher elevations, melting some of the state's snowpack. Showers, along with runoff, have moved rivers to flood stage throughout the state. In Monterey County, the Pajara River breached a levee, forcing evacuations. Matt Gillum of member station KCRW reports. The latest weather system in the parade of storms is expected to march in on Monday, bringing more rain and snow to some areas of California. With another storm incoming, National Weather Service meteorologist Antoinette Serrato says residents facing the prospect of flooding or mudslides are going to have to stay on alert. It is going to be a wet week, which will only exacerbate the impacts that we've been having. President Biden has declared an emergency in the state due to the ongoing severe weather. Models predict some relief coming in the latter part of the week, but they also show a slight chance of another wet weekend. For NPR News, I'm Matt Gillum. 
The Federal Reserve recently slowed the pace of interest rate hikes. Steve Beckner looks at what could happen the next time the Fed meets. After hiking the federal funds rate three quarters of a point at four straight meetings, the Fed raised it half a point in December and a quarter point last month. But worsening inflation, strong consumer spending, and tight labor markets gave Chairman Jerome Powell second thoughts. He told Congress rates likely must go higher and warned the Fed is prepared to increase the pace of rate hikes if the inflation outlook darkens. Since Powell testified, bigger-than-expected job gains reinforced concerns about wage pressures. If Tuesday's Consumer Price Index report proves unfavorable, the Fed could revert to larger rate hikes. For NPR News, I'm Steve Beckner. Chinese leader Xi Jinping has unexpectedly retained two key economic figures in Beijing's new governing lineup. The BBC's Stephen McDonald reports. Xi Gang will stay on as governor of China's Reserve Bank, and Liu Kun will retain his role as finance minister. That both will continue in these roles, despite having reached the official retirement age of 65, is being interpreted as a sign that their experience is needed for the tough economic road ahead, including trade tensions with the US. At the annual rubber stamp congress, allies of Xi Jinping have been placed in vice premier positions as China's leader solidifies his already tight grip on power. The BBC's Stephen McDonald in Beijing. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. It might be later than you think if you forgot to set your clocks ahead an hour last night. It's 10.04. And today marks the start of Daylight Saving Time. WBUR's Dave Fanoff spoke with Senator Ed Markey. The Massachusetts Democrat is trying to make the Spring Forward framework permanent. Markey says Americans want more sunshine in the winter and Congress can deliver. Markey is co-sponsor of a bipartisan bill that would allow states to lock in Daylight Saving Time permanently or opt out if they choose. He says there are benefits to this. I've heard from small businesses who've seen more customers come through their doors when the sun is still out, workers commuting home, students leaving school. Their days are just a bit brighter because of daylight saving time. A similar bill was approved during the last session in the Senate but died in the House. Markey says the bill's passage is inevitable, and he believes this is the year to get it done. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. Drivers trying to get back from Logan Airport are facing detours. The Sumner Tunnel is closed through tomorrow at 5 a.m. Workers are making extensive improvements to the aging tunnel. It's beach day for some people. More than 140 costumed shamrock splashers will take a chilly dip at Constitution Beach in Boston. They're raising money for Save the Harbor's Better Beaches program partnership. The group will have a costume contest at 1.15 this afternoon with the splash at 1.30. Spring is looming, but so is a winter storm in Massachusetts. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes has the forecast. A nor'easter is on the way. This storm will be a moderate to high impact and longer duration event. Some rain and inland snow moves in Monday night and continues all day Tuesday. Slowly winding down Tuesday night, the highest accumulation will be inland, outside of 495 north and west of Boston, where over a foot may come down. And it'll be a heavy wet snow, too, so some outages are likely. Amounts will decrease closer to the coast, but it'll still be enough to bring out the plows. Damaging wind gusts will be a concern Tuesday. Numerous gusts to 55 miles per hour, some to 65 at the coast, along with minor coastal flooding and erosion with crashing waves at the shore. It's 38 degrees in Boston.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. And Jarl and Pamela Moan, thanking the people who make public radio great every day, and also those who listen. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning, and thanks for gathering with us today. President Trump was wrong. That's what former Vice President Mike Pence told D.C. insiders at a dinner last night. Pence was talking about the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol when Trump urged his supporters to try and stop Pence and Congress from certifying the presidential election that Joe Biden had won. The remarks are Pence's most forceful rebuke of Trump yet. To talk about them and to put them into broader context, we're joined now by NPR White House correspondent Scott Detrow. Good morning, Scott. Hey, good morning. So why why do Pence's remarks matter right now? You know, it's been more than two years since the attack on the Capitol. So why now? Well, I mean, remember, Donald Trump is running for president again. So I think this is going to be something we keep talking about in a lot of different ways. And, and just to refresh, I don't know how much people need to be refreshed on January 6th, but, you know, we will. Pence did play a key role that day. He was overseeing the electoral count certification And Trump and other key uh, election deniers pressured him to reject key states and deny Biden 270 electoral votes. And that would have led to an unprecedented crisis. But Pence refused to go along with it. We all know what happened next. And we know how many of the people who who attacked the Capitol did so wanting to find, hurt or even kill Pence. So speaking out against this and Trump feels like a no brainer. And yet Pence has so far up until now tried to have it both ways to stand up for what he did, but not directly attack Trump. And often he in the past has said things like he and Trump will, quote, never see eye to eye about January 6th. So what exactly did he say last night? So this was at the Gridiron Dinner, which is a fancy ballroom gathering of journalists and Washington insiders. And speakers usually keep the remarks light and make a lot of jokes. But but Pence took a different tone. He said, quote, President Trump was wrong and that, quote, his reckless words endangered my family and everyone at the Capitol that day. Pence also said, quote, I know history will hold Donald Trump accountable. So here's some context. Pence is considering running against uh, running for president against Trump. So far, there's only one other declared candidate in the Republican side of the race, and that's former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. And Haley and other likely Trump opponents have really not focused on January 6th, and they have not tried to directly attack Trump for, for what he did that day. Pence now seems to be making a different calculation. Mm. And, and Pence spoke just days after Fox News host Tucker Carlson aired heavily edited security footage from that day and tried to paint January 6th as something that's been exa- exaggerated, saying it was actually a peaceful event um, and that it was mostly just kind of sightseers, kind of touristy. Um, yeah. Was Pence actually responding to that? He, he did seem to address that segment. He said, quote, tourists don't injure 140 police officers sightseeing or break down doors to get to the speaker's office. And remember, Carlson got those videos because the current speaker, Kevin McCarthy, handed them over. And that tells you how many elected Republican officials have moved to this place of at best wanting to ignore January 6th and at worst actively trying to minimize or distort this this violent attempt to overturn a presidential election. Other thing that jumped out to me about all of this was how quick President 
Biden was to engage in those Fox videos. He directly attacked Carlson's efforts on Twitter. And I think that shows Biden sees this trend as a way to hold on to, to moderate and independent voters. In the about 30 seconds we have left to quickly shift gears, there's not the that's not the only thing Biden has done in recent days with those kind of voters in mind, right? Yeah, uh, he he signaled he would sign a Republican bill to overturn a local law passed by Washington, D.C.'s city government. Congress has the power to do this. This this would have lessened penalties for some violent offenses. And there was thought that Biden would veto this because he said a lot that he supports D.C. statehood. Instead, he said, no, I would sign that law. And, and that led to kind of a bandwagon of Democrats voting against Washington, D.C.'s uh, autonomy overturning a, a rule there and really trying to clearly insulate themselves against Republican attacks that that Biden and other Democrats are soft on crime. So that was an interesting political choice he made. That's NPR White House correspondent Scott Detrow. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Saudi Arabia and Iran have had tense relations for years, but on Friday, the two countries took a step towards toning down their animosity. Saudi Arabia and Iran agreed to restore diplomatic ties that were cut several years ago, and the mediator was China. NPR's Deborah Amos joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. What can you tell us about this agreement? So it was pretty simple as it was set out. It's a return to diplomatic relations broken off since 2016. Then Iranian protesters stormed the Saudi embassy in Iran. What they were protesting is the beheading of a prominent Saudi cleric convicted on terrorism charges. The cleric was a Shia Muslim, as are most Iranians. Things got worse again in 2019 after missile and drone attacks on Saudi oil facilities. Saudi Arabia blamed that on Iran. Now, both sides are going to reopen embassies in two months. And as important, they agreed to renew a security pact signed 22 years ago to cooperate on terrorism, drug smuggling, money laundering, and another agreement on trade and technology. So if these commitments are kept, what would that mean for the region? Well, it might, and I must emphasize might, calm tensions. These two rivals have been on opposite sides of a number of regional conflicts in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, in power struggles for control of Lebanon, too. I talked to Gregory Gauz. He's a prominent Saudi expert at Texas A&M. We note he's also affiliated with a Washington think tank that's received funding from Saudi sources and, and many others. Gauz says Yemen will be the big test of a rivalry that's been the major fault line in the Middle East. There's still plenty of problems with Iran. I think that the essentials of the rivalry are still there. Ceasefire in Yemen, but no settlement. Right. To me, the real signal of a Saudi Iranian rapprochement will be a settlement. If the Chinese could do that, then, you know, Nobel prizes all around. So that's hard. There's a fragile ceasefire in Yemen, but Saudi airstrikes there have killed thousands. And Iranian backed Houthis, they've launched attacks into Saudi Arabia. So this is a very bitter stalemate right now. OK, so now let's let's turn to the mediator in this deal. How did China end up playing a role that the U.S. often plays? And it seems like that might be just as important as the deal. So, look, this is a new role for China, and it's hard to overstate that. Why Saudi Iran? You know, for one thing, China has influence with both countries. In Iran, China is a big trading partner, about 30 percent of Iran's trade. That's big. For Saudi Arabia, China is a big oil customer. The U.S. doesn't have direct relations with Iran, so China could talk to both. In addition, even though the U.S. still has huge military bases in the region, Arab Gulf countries have worried for years 
that the U.S. commitment to security is not as strong as some before. And analysts say the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, doesn't want to be limited to just working with the U.S., which has criticized him for human rights abuses in ways that China does not. So here's Besma Momani. She's a Canadian-Saudi expert at Waterloo University. And she says the crown prince's policy reflects this new Saudi nationalism. He's very much interested in advancing Saudi Arabia, first and foremost, and those long-time agreements of the great relationship with the United States just don't resonate anymore. So does this deal present downsides for the U.S.? Hard to say. Publicly, the Biden administration said it welcomed any agreement that de-escalates regional tensions. Here is a rare case that this deal is praised both by Washington and by Iran-backed Hezbollah in Lebanon. There are objectors. U.S. foreign policy experts are split. There's an argument. Is this bad for the U.S. because China is taking over this traditional role in the region? And it also raises questions about a U.S. diplomatic initiative, an attempt to broker a formal diplomatic opening between Saudi Arabia and Israel. That's something Israel has sought, but now might have to rethink it. For now, the U.S. is still a big security power in the region, but some Saudis I talked to about this diplomatic opening are excited. Some Saudi watchers say it's a dark day for the U.S. Others say anything that lowers tension in the Middle East is a good thing. But all agree this could be a big deal. That's NPR's Deborah Amos. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Sexual assault at U.S. military academies is on the rise. That's the conclusion of a Pentagon report released Friday. Colorado Public Radio's Dan Boyce says the worsening trend comes despite years of stepped-up efforts to address the problem. The Defense Department began anonymous surveys of unwanted sexual contact in 2006 in the wake of a scandal involving widespread sexual assault at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. The latest survey shows not only the highest rates of assault on record, but an 18% increase from the previous record in 2018. Pentagon spokeswoman Beth Foster says there's really no other way to describe the results. They're upsetting. Our cadets and midshipmen, our future military leaders, should be able to learn and grow in an environment free of sexual assault and harassment. Rates increased for both women and men at all three academies, the most dramatic spike for women at the Air Force Academy and the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. Alcohol was cited as a factor in more than half the cases. Over the last two decades, the military has installed sexual assault prevention offices at the academies. Students undergo extensive training on appropriate conduct. Foster says academy leaders just still need better guidance. Because the science and data has evolved so much in this space in recent years, they need new tools and capabilities to get after this. The military has tried to make it easier for victims to come forward. Cadets and midshipmen can now report assault without being cited themselves for misconduct, such as underage drinking. Rachel Van Landingham is president of the National Institute of Military Justice. She says Congress is also looking to change who prosecutes such claims whether it's a lawyer that's independent from the chain of command versus a commander, out of this realization that individuals in the military don't trust their commanders to make good decisions in this arena. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says each academy will receive an on-site evaluation of their sexual assault prevention policies by the end of April. For NPR News, I'm Dan Boyce in Colorado Springs. 
You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 1018 and coming up in about five minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, Calculating Time on the Moon. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. Join us at City Space this Friday, March 17th, for an event featuring Kelly McCovers and Chris Benderev, the host and producer of NPR's documentary-style podcast, Embedded. For tickets, go to WBUR.org events. I'm Luis Schiavone with these headlines. In his toughest remarks about Donald Trump yet, former Vice President Mike Pence declared history will hold the former president accountable for the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. Pence spoke at a gathering of journalists and politicians last night in Washington. Higher crude oil prices propelled oil giant Saudi Aramco to profits of $161 billion last year. The firm, known formally as the Saudi Arabian Oil Company, published its annual report today. And just a reminder, for most of the country, this is the first day of this year's daylight saving time, when the clock advances one hour. The time change began at 2 a.m. local time. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates to fill job openings, all from their employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done, no matter where it gets done, from ink and toner cartridges to technology like webcams and networking accessories. More at Staples Stores or staplesconnect.com. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Let's follow up on a story out of Texas where last week five women announced they were suing over the state's abortion ban. They say they were denied necessary and potentially life-saving care because doctors there fear legal repercussions. One woman says her ordeal included doctors needing approval from a hospital ethics board. We wanted to find out more about the role such boards might be playing when it comes to medical exceptions in states with abortion bans. Someone who's been following this is Dr. Ann Lyerly. She trained as an OBGYN and is now a professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. So traditionally, what is the role of a hospital ethics board? I know you served on one early in your career. Yes. So hospital ethics committees or hospital ethics boards are committees that are an important part of many or most medical institutions across the country. They can help doctors and patients navigate areas of ethical conflict or ethical questions, questions that come up about withdrawal of life support or say an adolescent is refusing cancer treatment, or a range of other medically, ethically complicated questions. 
And so what kind of care are we talking about when pregnant patients would require an abortion? So when we think about abortion, abortion is often uh, morally complicated and contested procedure. But the kinds of cases that have come up in Texas and indeed around the country where bans are in place are in fact not ethically complicated cases. In fact, the ethical way forward is pretty clear. For example, unfortunately, there has widely been reported situations in which women have had ruptured membranes prior to viability of their pregnancies, which means sort of ruptured membranes several weeks before the baby would be able to survive outside the womb. The standard of care in these cases is to provide a timely abortion to prevent harm to the pregnant woman. There is nothing to be gained. There's no chance that the pregnancy would be able to continue or that the baby would be able to survive if the pregnancy is prolonged. And in fact, waiting would be against the standard of care and is ethically problematic. And when you say rupturing membranes, that means like when your water breaks, essentially. Right. And when it breaks, there is no longer fluid around the baby. The baby cannot exercise its lungs, so the lungs can't develop. It can't grow. And in addition, and more dangerously, infection can ensue within the womb and then very quickly go to a woman's other organs and become life-threatening. So how does it strike you then that in some cases, hospital ethics boards are being invoked to determine eligibility for these medical exceptions to these abortion bans? Well, I think this is absolutely not a job for an ethics committee. All of these cases are cases in which everybody knows what the right thing to do is. And in fact, I think that these boards in many cases are being deployed as a legal shield rather than a tool to help doctors and patients uh, get the care that they need. What can happen to patients who have to wait for this process to play out? Well, unfortunately, in many cases, the question is whether the provision of abortion is necessary because a patient's life is threatened. And again, in many cases, the doctor has already decided that that patient's life is in danger. And so waiting for uh, the judgment of an ethics board can put her at risk of getting severely ill or dying. It's not even been a year since the Supreme Court reversed Roe. Where might this be headed? Well, one of the remarkable, if heartbreaking, things that has happened in the last year is that it has foregrounded this really tremendous um, gray area. Usually when we think about abortion, there are those that are in favor and those that are against it. But as these cases have exemplified, abortion is critical health care. It is needed to keep women safe, women who are pregnant and want to carry their pregnancies to term and has helped the public and many others understand that abortion is central to the good care of all pregnant people. 
Dr. Ann Lyerly is a professor of social medicine at UNC Chapel Hill. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. The clock leaped ahead last night, and that may have left you a little confused about what time it is this morning. But scientists say this is just a small taste of the confusion that's coming when humans start traveling into space. Away from planet Earth, time gets more complicated. And that's why the European Space Agency is now proposing to create a new time standard for the moon. Joining me to discuss what this means is NPR science correspondent Jeff Brumfield. Welcome to the program. Hi, Yusha. Nice to be here. Yes. Okay, so Jeff... What time is it on the moon right now? (laughs) That's an excellent question. So a day on the moon is defined by the time it takes the sun to get to the same point in the sky is 29 and a half Earth days. So that's actually not a practical way to do time on the moon. Um, The way all the rovers and probes and things we have up there right now work, they just work off Earth time. But the thing is, there's plans afoot to do a lot more with the moon, send a lot more missions, start sending crewed missions over there. NASA wants to send astronauts to orbit the moon as soon as next year. And that's the first step they hope to putting a a space station around the moon and eventually getting a permanent settlement on its surface. And these scientists say that, you know, if we're going to do all that, we're going to need a new kind of time. We're going to need lunar time. Why couldn't they just bring a watch, bring a cell phone, and they would know, like, what time it is? That's how we figure out time here. Exactly. Well, you know, I called Javier Ventura Treviset, the European Space Agency, and he told me that's actually how the original Apollo missions did it. And it kind of made sense, right? Because they were the only ones up there. It didn't really matter what time it was. It is only one user, no? So you could conceptually think, okay, I have my own clock in my mission. And I am connecting with the Earth to align my clock with the clock of the Earth. But here's the thing you really need to know about time, Aisha, is that its true power comes from multiple people agreeing on the time. And so when you're the only ones up there, you can just work with Earth time. But imagine there's a bunch of robotic spacecraft flying around. There's, you know, rovers on the surface and astronauts, and they all need to agree on the time to work together. So what are we talking about then? Would there be a a new time zone for the moon? So we're actually talking about something much more fundamental, which is a new time scale. So here on Earth, we all have our time zones, but there's actually a single time standard. It's called Coordinated Universal Time or UTC. Maybe you've heard of that. I've heard of that, but I don't know much about it. UTC, the way it works is it sort of synchronizes all the seconds and minutes and hours, and then we all set our own time zones. It keeps the internet humming. It's responsible for cell phones, being able to talk to each other over networks, financial markets. But most importantly, it's really key to navigation. And now imagine we're trying to extend UTC to the moon. So there's a few problems with taking our time scale and moving it to the moon. The first is that Earth is a little over a light second away from the moon. That means if you're broadcasting a time signal from Earth, it'll arrive a little late. That's not a huge deal at all. You can just tweak your clocks, but it does kind of complicate things. But there's this second really, really weird thing that happens. Um, Time actually flows differently on the moon than the Earth. So Ventura Treviset said, imagine taking two clocks and putting one on the Earth and one on the moon. And then you say, okay, both are exactly at the same time now. And then you let them run in 
after 24 hours will not have the same time. It's not that one is ticking differently because it's on the moon. It's because time is literally flowing faster on the moon than it is on the Earth. That is very, that is strange. Now, it's only about 56 microseconds every day. That's nothing for humans. But 56 microseconds makes a big difference when you're talking about navigation or communication or electronics. And so it does matter for all these systems that we want to build on the moon. So defining any timescale takes a long time. And it's going to take a lot of discussions between all the space agencies and people here on Earth in coming months and years. That's NPR science correspondent Jeff Brumfield. Thank you so much. Thank you, Aisha. Around this time each year, women and girls from the Umatilla tribes in Northeast Oregon gather wild celery. They say their ancestors come back through the plant, and the tradition marks the arrival of spring. The Northwest News Network's Anna King reports. Off a remote highway outside of Mission, Oregon, a crew of women and girls gets ready to dig. So if we're all ready, we all need to line up. As they line up oldest to youngest, some faces are missing, mostly the elders who used to lead this gathering of wild celery. COVID hit the Confederated tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation pretty hard. Now it's middle-aged women like Trish McMichael towards the front of the line. They scramble up steep cliffs, sometimes using their hands as well as their feet. Woo, woo, woo. Turned it. Did you get one? Celery grows when there's still snow on the ground. The tops poking through between the rocks. It looks like small, curly parsley with a white stalk. Oh, you want to dig that up? The group digs them up with metal rods called cuppins, gently moving the rocks back and forth to get at the plant. They're everywhere as I look down. Are, aren't they? We are very blessed this year. Very blessed. Trinette Minthorn has been coming to collect the celery since she was six years old. My dad's mother, um, she dug for a very long time until you know she couldn't you know get up the hills and but she would come. She would sit in the car and ve- vehicle and watch us and you know she was our cheerleader and our greatest supporter even though minthorn is just 48 now she took on much more responsibility after her grandmother's death when she left us it was it was hard but you know we had to continue with the work you know because that's what you know she taught us these women describe each plant as a family the grandparents are the old dead stalks from years past the parents are tall and green The children, tiny nubs. With climate change, the celery harvest is getting harder to predict, says Althea Wolf. She's here digging with her daughter. We used to eat the celery until about June, and it doesn't last that long anymore because it's so dry. So when you have bits of snowpack around, that's really good for the celery because it helps it just continue to grow and grow. Uh, You don't get that anymore. The women don't taste the celery right away. They bite into it after a big ceremony back at the longhouse when they say their ancestors and recent dead return through the plant to nourish them. Three-year-old Peepsh 
is here for her first ceremonial dig of Latit Latit, the wild celery, accompanied by her mother, Michelle Tyus. Say, we're happy to feed the people. We're happy to feed the people. Latit This joy makes her elders smile. Soon, Pipsh will be called to move up in the line. For NPR News, I'm Anna King, outside of Mission, Oregon. listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Vocal fry is that low, creaky sound we've heard from the likes of Kim Kardashian. New research in the journal Science now shows that same vocal fry is what allows certain kind of whales to find and catch their food. Science reporter Ari Daniel has more. I got a hold of Cohen Elements at the Copenhagen airport. They normally never say anything at this airport. They're very vocal today. Elements is a bioacoustician at the University of Southern Denmark, and he says the airport is as good a place as any to hear the different ways people vocalize. What I hear is a lot of people talking. They're mostly using what's called a chest register. That's our typical speaking voice. Then Elements notices some music, the situation where we most often hear our higher-pitched vocal register on display, falsetto. This singing register. We also have a lower register, below how we usually talk. That's vocal fry. Sounds like this. All these sounds, we produce them by sending air across our vocal folds in the larynx. But this tissue vibrates differently for each register. In the vocal fry register, your vocal folds are most slack. So they're thick and heavy. And they vibrate at their lowest frequencies. In the falsetto register, they're stretched long and are under higher tension. And these lead to the highest frequencies. Elements wondered whether a similar thing might be at play in toothed whales, like bottlenose dolphins, orcas, pilot whales, to allow them to produce everything from whistles to bursts, the sound we associate with flipper, to echolocation clicks used to hunt for food. Now, toothed whales have a larynx, but it doesn't produce sound. Rather, they evolve some new structure that's located in their nose that generates the sound, what's called phonic lips. For decades, it's been really hard to observe the phonic lips in action, but Elements and his colleagues have managed to do just that. They lowered a small camera into the blowholes of a few trained captive dolphins and porpoises. And we showed that there's definitely movement of these while they make echolocation clicks. Then they worked with harbor porpoises that had died in the wild and saw that the phonic lips aren't controlled by muscles. Instead, they're moved just like our human voice by airflow, and that's a really striking parallel. Additional experiments suggested toothed whales likely have separate vocal registers, just like we do, that generate their numerous sounds. The vocal fry register is responsible for echolocation. This is, I think, the very best research that shows uh, how the sounds are made mechanically and to prove that the sounds are generated by air 
University of Birmingham evolutionary biologist Agnese Lanzetti wasn't involved in the research. Her point about air is important, because when an animal like a sperm whale dives deep below the surface, its lungs collapse under the pressure. But inside the bony structure of the nose, air can continue to move around and power echolocation, says Cohen Elements. By moving all the air into the nose, these tooth whales are able to generate much higher pressures to drive the system, and with that they can make basically the loudest sounds any animal can make on the planet. And more importantly, feed themselves in the process, turning vocal fry into fish fry. For NPR News, I'm Ari Daniel. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. This season has been unusually mild, but a winter storm is waiting in the wings. A nor'easter is due to arrive tomorrow night and hang around through Tuesday. It is expected to deliver wind, rain, and snow to the region, and it will be a wet, heavy snow, so prepare for power outages. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce says the highest accumulations will be inland outside 495 north and west of Boston. That area may get over a foot of snow. Amounts will decrease closer to the coast. A few MBTA service changes took effect today. Some bus routes now operate with more frequency. One route has reduced frequency, and some bus routes have other changes. For more information, check with the WMB, uh, with the MBTA website. Meanwhile, speed restrictions remain in place on the entire Green Line, on the Mattapan Trolley, and on parts of the blue, orange, and red lines. On Thursday, the T imposed system-wide slowdowns because some track safety documents were missing or inconsistent. If you planned on using the Sumner Tunnel in Boston today, then get set for detours. It is closed through tomorrow at 5 a.m. as part of a project making extensive improvements to the aging structure. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University, educating the exceptionally competent and socially conscious business leader. Learn more at leslie.edu. And Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. Russia's 53rd Anti-Aircraft Missile Brigade is one of the most deadly and secretive units operating in Ukraine. Militaries undertake significant efforts to try to hide their important key battlefield assets. The 53rd is certainly one of those. Tracking Russia's notorious 53rd on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. 
Joining us today is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Good to talk to you, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So, Will, could you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from a writer for The Simpsons, uh, Mike Reese. Name something scary in two words. Five of the letters are vowels, which are all the same, and the consonants are all Roman numerals. What scary thing is this? And the answer is voodoo doll, has five O's, and V, D, and L are all Roman numerals. Oh, okay. And we had a voodoo doll maker on the show just a few weeks back. <laughs> so so very appropriate. Uh, this week's challenge was popular. Y'all really got this one. Out of over 1,400 correct submissions, John Stimble of Tucker, Georgia, is our puzzle winner. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Thank you. So how long have you been playing the puzzle? I go back to the postcard days and certainly didn't submit every week, but when I got it, I tried to submit. Oh, okay. So this has been a long time coming. Yes, ma'am. And so what do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? Um, I spend a lot of time outdoors with the dogs and my family hiking, and we do a lot of caving. And what's caving? Cave exploring. Ooh, um, so you go into the dark caves and exp- <laughs> and try to see what's going on. We like the darkness, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, well, you're very brave. So then I know you got to be ready for this puzzle, right? Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, you are ready. We're going to help you. So uh, take it away, Will. All right, John and Aisha. And Aisha, I apologize in advance. I know you don't love geography, oh, no. but uh, here we go. <laughs> so uh, today's puzzle involves consonants which are words that have the same consonants in the same order, but with different vowels. Every answer today is the name of a country. For example, if I said mingle, M-I-N-G-L-E, you would say Mongolia, because mingle and Mongolia have the same consonants, M-N-G and L. Here we go. Number one is believe, B-E-L-I-E-V-E. What country has the same consonants as that, B-L and V? Uh, Bolivia. Bolivia is right. Number two is sewed on. S-E-W-E-D-O-N. Sweden. Is right. Your next one is beleaguer. B-E-L-E-A-G-U-E-R. B-L-G. B-L-G and R you're looking for. Bulgaria. Bulgaria. Good job. Hinders. H-I-N-D-E-R-S. H-N-D-R-S. Honduras. Honduras, good. Erases. E-R-A-S-E-S. Wow. Um, lots of S's. Yeah. R-S-S. It's a country, unfortunately, in the news. Oh. Um, Russia. Russia is right. Encourage, E-N-C-O-U-R-A-G-E. That's a lot of us. Nicaragua. Nicaragua, that was fast. Sterile, S-T-E-R-I-L-E. This one's tricky because the answer starts with a vowel. Oh. No, not Estonia. Um. Oh, oh, oh. It starts with two vowels. It starts with two vowels. Good one. (laughs) It's kangaroos, kangaroos. Oh, Australia. Australia is it. Username, U-S-E-R-N-A-M-E. Surname. 
Suriname, that was fast. And your last one is Bozen, which is spelled B-O-A-T-S-W-A-I-N. So you're looking for the consonants B, T, S, W, and N. Um, Botswana. Botswana, nice job. You did really, really good with that because I wasn't much help. (laughs) And you were getting them fast. So you did an amazing job. How do you feel? I feel relieved always. (laughs) For playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And John, what member station do you listen to? W-A-B-E in Atlanta. That's John Stimble of Tucker, Georgia. Thank you for playing the puzzle. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, Will, what is next week's challenge? Yeah, it's a spinoff of my on-air puzzle. Name two countries that have consonants that are nationalities of other countries. And in each case, the consonants in the name of the country are the same consonants in the same order as those in the nationality of another country. No extra consonants can appear in either name, and the letter Y isn't used. Can you do it? Okay. When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, March 16th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. Monkeys are clever animals and can be taught a lot of things, including, it seems, how to work. But an animal rights group says they're being put to work under terrible conditions. PETA says pigtailed macaques in Thailand are being forced to pick coconuts for the production of coconut milk. The Thai government says it's creating a program for picking coconuts that excludes monkeys, But for now, meal kit company HelloFresh says it will stop selling coconut milk sourced from that country. To start with, picking coconuts is not a thing that the monkeys would do. Pigtail macaques naturally would not pick coconuts. They can't eat coconuts. They're too big. They're too hard. That's Vincent Nyman. He's a professor of anthropology at Oxford Brookes University in the UK. He studies primate conservation and welfare. Nyman says these monkeys are also kept in very difficult conditions. Another thing to remember is that we are talking about a single male macaque on a leash going up 20 meters high up in a tree. In a normal setting, that macaque would be living in a group of 15, 20 other macaques in the forest. Uh, So in that sense, it's a very unnatural setting as well. Thailand has been raising and training these monkeys to pick coconuts for around 400 years. Nyman says that while it's common to domesticate some animals for labor, these monkeys remain wild and they're part of a small group of other wild animals also used for work. So the wild animals I can think of are, say, falcons used in falconry. There are some examples of uh, cormorant fishing in Asia, where cormorants fish in lakes and fishermen make use of that. And perhaps another thing what you could think of is animals being used in entertainment shows. Like in circuses, which do not have the best track record. I think the main problem is is that people should realize that macaques should not be kept as pets or kept as working companions. That's where it starts. HelloFresh says it made its decision out of an abundance of caution. But Nyman says companies still have more to do. I would actually like them 
to step up and see, rather than stepping away, see if we can find a solution, because these macaques are still there. That was Vincent Nyman, professor of anthropology and primate researcher at Oxford Brookes University. Pretty much everything from pandemic masks to M&M commercials have become a part of the culture wars. So too has high school theater. Plays and musicals are being challenged or canceled over content that's deemed not family friendly. One such case is in Cardinal High School in Middlefield, Ohio. As NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports, the story there took an unexpected pirouette. The 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee is a musical that debuted on Broadway in 2005, ran for nearly three years, and won two Tony Awards. At the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, my parents keep on telling me, just being here is winning. High schools love this show and perform it often. In the show, a lot of the kids are dealing with problems at home or like self-image issues. Riley Machenga is a senior at Cardinal High School. She was cast as Logan Schwartzengrubenier, a competitor in the spelling bee who has two gay dads. Carl dad is kind of like a drill sergeant with spelling. Like he wants his daughter to be super successful and win, win, win. Where Dan is more like, okay, it's time for a break. Like we can... Let her chill out for a little bit. Oh, my Tolka friends roll their eyes. They're incredibly petty because my dad's and my dad's and I'll write enough already. Whoa, with me. Rehearsals were going well, but about three weeks in, the director, music teacher Vanessa Allen, got a call from the Cardinal School's superintendent. Asking why was the school board getting, I don't know if he said phone calls or emails about the school musical. And he mentioned something about inappropriate content. There's some dispute over what the objections were. Allen says she was told they were sexual innuendo, the appearance of Jesus, and the two gay dads. Superintendent Jack Cunningham has denied those were the issues. He declined to be interviewed, but in a public statement said the musical was canceled because of vulgarity. Director Vanessa Allen called a meeting with the cast and crew and their parents and told them the show was canceled. And then we gave them the option and said, we are willing to, for lack of a better word, to fight this decision, but only if that's what you want us to do. And we were all like, yes, let's fight it. Let's do it. We love this show. We think it's a really good show and something worth putting on. Don't mess with the tight-knit world of theater people. Word spread. There's something I sort of feel like I have to get off my chest. Um, Actor Jesse Tyler now. Ferguson, uh, who starred in Modern Family, I, was in the original cast of Spelling Bee. He took to Instagram. I guarantee that there's someone at this, this school who is maybe being raised by gay parents, but definitely more than one person at the school is gay or lesbian or bisexual. And the message that this sends to them that that is not family appropriate or family friendly rather is toxic and his message reached um, thousands of people and, and ended up on the news a school musical here in northeast ohio is getting national attention over some controversy meantime the original creators of spelling bee called vanessa allen in middlefield they found my contact information and offered to make changes got that 
creators of a beloved Broadway musical offered to make changes for a high school in Middlefield, Ohio. It's heartbreaking for the kids if you cancel it in the middle of rehearsals and construction and the rest. That's librettist Rachel Scheinkin, who won a Tony for Spelling Bee. Now, a lot of shows have junior versions kids can perform. There isn't one for Spelling Bee, except for an alternate version of a song about puberty. But what's pretty unusual here, the creators agreed to consider the school board's specific changes, more than 20 of them. There were a lot of different requests, and we weren't able to accommodate ones that changed the story or the character arc. But we were very happy to accommodate ones that changed individual words and a whole lot of damn and Can you say on NPR? No, we have to bleep it. If you can't say it on NPR, then you can understand why they don't want to say it in Middlefield. And we can be sympathetic to that. She agreed to change good lord to good grief. She changed a line about someone being a virgin. She did not agree to change this song. I'm not that smart. My siblings have been telling me that for years. There was a request in the song, I'm not that smart, change, I'm not that smart. The kid sings, I'm not that smart, because that's what he hears from his family. Clearly, that's a bigger change than we're going to be able to make, and it has to do with the character's story, who comes to appreciate his own intelligence. I might be smart. My siblings can't believe that I got it right. A lot of the changes the board wanted would have made the show kinder and gentler. But the show is about a competition. School board officials asked that one character not be a bully. They asked that another not lament feeling like a loser. We thought it sounds like they're wanting all the characters to be nice. And not all characters in drama are nice. Theater is about more than just getting on stage and singing a song and dancing a dance or whatever. Cardinal High School senior Riley Machinga. It's about making people think critically, think about life in ways that you wouldn't on a day-to-day basis, and empathize with people. Empathy. In some ways, that's what happened at Cardinal High School. The school board announced the show would go on. In an email to NPR, Superintendent Jack Cunningham wrote, We are focused on learning from our situation and moving forward internally. Whatever the original reasons for the objections might have been, we came to a place of common understanding and common sense and consideration for the students. And I think it's fair to say there's consideration for the students on all sides. To ideate is to form an image or idea to think. Nice ending to a difficult story. Vanessa Allen is thrilled her students are getting to perform. But this experience has shaken her. I think we all see what's happening nationally with censorship, and I never thought that I would be dealing with it. But now, after all this, I mean, I'm starting to question everything I'm doing now. Teachers are definitely nervous. They're nervous about just saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. Drew Cohen is CEO of Music Theater International, which licenses musicals to, among others, thousands of high schools. The last thing they want to do is have a problem with the parent body or the board because they picked the wrong show. Wrong is subjective, and that makes it a tough environment for high school theater programs. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. 
Later today, some of Hollywood's biggest stars will be parading down the red carpet for the annual Academy Awards. But if you can't watch the show tonight, don't worry. We'll have all the highlights for you on tomorrow's Morning Edition. To listen, stream NPR on your phone or computer, or just listen to us on the radio. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. A nor'easter is on the way. The storm is supposed to move in tomorrow night and continue through Tuesday. It'll deliver wind, rain, and snow to the region. Some locations outside 495 north and west of Boston could get over a foot of snow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Habib and Associates Architects, serving the greater Boston area with comprehensive architectural services. Proud to support WBUR, HabibARCH.com, and Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. Russia's 53rd Anti-Aircraft Missile Brigade is one of the most deadly and secretive units operating in Ukraine. Militaries undertake significant efforts to try to hide their important key battlefield assets. The 53rd is certainly one of those. Tracking Russia's notorious 53rd on the next morning edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.